the hidden costs of occupational licenses, what we lose and why. Michael Tanner, senior fellow from the Cato Institute, explains. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, listeners. Hope you're having a great day. Today, we've got an interesting topic. We're talking about occupational licenses. But before we dive into that, we got to thank our sponsor, NBI, the National Business Institute. Attorneys have trusted NBI with their CLE needs for over 35 years. Visit nbi-sems.com today. And don't forget the promo code LegalTalkNBI to get $100 off your next CLE course. All right. Welcome to the show, Michael. How are you doing today? Well, great. It's a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you for joining us. No, it's going to be a lot of fun. So this is uh, definitely a topic that uh, I've been excited to talk about for quite some time here. So, Michael, let me do a little setup. This may take a minute or two. So just bear with me as we uh, get into that first uh, substance question. So I caught your article on the Cato Institute's website, Occupational Licensing Reform Moves Forward. And I found it very interesting, obviously, and I think very timely article. Uh, you know, we've got unemployment in the country and people are trying to settle back in after the COVID-19 closures, and uh, hopefully unemployment keeps falling uh, as it has been for the last couple of months. But uh, at the same time, and this has been going on for a a couple of years now, there's been some big debates in the legal profession about uh, increasing licensing options for non-lawyers. So, you know, bringing paralegals into the mix and bringing different entities that provide legal services into the mix. And so some states are going in one direction and some states are going in another direction. So there's a lot of debate there. But I think this is a uh, topic that's uh, applicable to everybody out there who works and uh, and it's applicable to the consumer as well as we'll discuss. So during my research, Michael, for the show uh, to prep, to ask you some smart questions, hopefully, I discovered uh, off one of the links that you had put in your article that uh, since 1950, we've really been on a steep increasing trend on how many different occupations are required to have a license. So just by way of example, in 1950, it was 5%. By 2000, it had gone up to 20%. And then just a few years later, 2006, 29%. And so I think most people, when they think like license, they think doctors and lawyers, and there's a lot of arguments for public safety and, and the prevention of fraud. But I was surprised to learn that there's other categories as well, like hair braiding, you know, tree trimmer, interior designer, uh, makeup artist, and painting contractor. And so... I thought that was really interesting. And uh, I also noticed over time as the licensing uh, trend has gone up, the uh, it seems like the requirements are not really, uh, I, I guess I would say not uniform. And so just give you a quick example before we get into that first question for you, Michael. Um, an EMT uh, across four states, Arkansas, uh, Missouri, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, about 28 days and two exams before you can become an EMT. But if you're in Arkansas, a painting contractor, you're looking at over 1,800 days of educational experience in one exam. And so that's a good jumping off place to uh, my first question for you, Michael. So just with that trend, do you think that the increase in occupational licensing lines up with concerns for consumer safety? Why or why not? Well, there really is little evidence to suggest that increased licensing requirements increase the safety. If you look at complaints, consumer problems, injuries, lawsuits, things of that nature, you don't find any correlation with the strength of licensing requirements. You also find, as you mentioned, there's very little logic between the amount of requirements required for particular jobs. In California, for example, you have to go something like six times as long in training to become a hairdresser as you do to become a tattoo artist. And you, so you would think that one might, might you know, have a little more direct contact with individuals on safety grounds 
than the other. But it really doesn't seem to spell out in terms of the types of training that are required. Do you really need 16 or 18 months worth of training to do hair as you do in Iowa or South Dakota, for example? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> you know, so I think it's one of those things that uh, policymakers uh, need to look at. But uh, you know, one thing as a lawyer that I'm real sensitive to, you know, in terms of our licensing, of course, uh, through the bar exam, is you know barriers to entry and mobility. I mean, you have to pass or be admitted to the bar in each state that you practice. But uh, according to the studies out there, there's a lot of jobs lost each year. So, Michael, could you quantify that for us and then tell us how and why that occurs? Yeah, there's estimates, depending on the study that you look at, of as many as 2 million jobs that are lost each year. And this is, of course, directly in terms of the fact that some people simply can't practice their profession uh, or can't practice their profession if they move to an area that might have more jobs. Very relevant right now where we're seeing uh, COVID shut down large areas of the economy. Uh, but if you have a license to do hair in California and you want to go to, Arizona, uh, to uh, New Mexico, because you heard there's jobs available there, you can't necessarily practice your profession in that way. Uh, it's particularly bad for low-income people and for military spouses who often have to move to different areas because their husband's redeployed or their wife's redeployed. Uh, so those type of places really get hit the worst. So for this next question, Michael, I'm going to put on my consumer hat. I, I really hate paying extra for products and services. I try to save money everywhere I can. And uh, according to the article that you wrote and, and the links uh, associated with it, there's a lot of extra money paid by consumers for products and services that come from professions with licensing. And so uh, can you tell us how much that is and then how that figure comes to be? Well, there really are a lot of figures and like everything, economists are going to radically disagree on this. Uh, in terms of the amounts and in terms of their methodology. Uh, the low end of it generally suggests somewhere around $6 billion uh, in cost to consumers. But there are method, uh, other studies, for example, by the Institute for Justice that suggest it could be as high as $184 billion a year wow. in cost to consumers. And this is simply because what you're doing is creating monopolies. If you limit the number of people in a profession, uh, they can charge higher prices. And therefore, they, you know, therefore, consumers will have to pay more. The more competition in an area, uh, you know, if you're taking, for example, interior designers, which in Florida is licensed, uh, if you have extremely strict requirements there, you have fewer interior designers, they can each charge you a lot more than if you, say, doubled the number because the requirements went down. Yeah, that that that's significant, and you know, I think it's sometimes uh, it's hard to prove those negatives, you know, when uh, when you've got so many uh, varying figures there. But uh, you know, another another figure that people look at that uh, manage a business or that a run of business is opportunity cost, and so there's another category of cost associated with occupational licenses that have been part of these studies, and a couple of them, you know, j just for example, uh, misallocation costs and dead weight loss. Can you tell us about some of those? additional costs that maybe don't necessarily show up in that pure calculation of additional fees or additional costs passed on to the consumer? We know there's less entrepreneurship, for example. Uh, there's studies that suggest that in this, the stricter the licensing can lower uh, entrepreneurship in a state by about 10 to 11 percent. And that means that fewer people are starting businesses because they can't get the license to get into a particular field. Fewer people in that field mean there's less innovation. There's not people out there trying to build that better mousetrap. Uh, out there. And that that's going to lower the economic growth as a whole. In addition, of course, they're not hiring people. So you have second and third order uh, effects on this. 
as well as the course of money that's simply being taken out of the economy through higher consumer costs. All of these things end up rebounding to hurt the economy, slowing economic growth. Pushing back. So it seems, Michael, that uh, governing officials are getting some messaging and feedback from John and Joanna Q. Public out there complaining about the burdens of occupational licensing on on their profession, on what they do. And so around the country, politicians are trying to enact some measures to reduce that impact. So can you give us some examples of how uh, politicians, governing officials are trying to reduce that burden today? Sure. Uh, There have been some states that have begun to take some action on this. For example, states have begun to accept reciprocity in terms uh, of licensing. For so that if you have, as I said, that uh, barber's license in California and you move to uh, to Arizona, Arizona will now accept your California license, uh, and you can set up shop in in their state. Uh, Arizona has done that. Pennsylvania's done that. Missouri just did it on very uh, on very widespread grounds and a number of licenses out there. So that sort of reciprocity rule is taking effect. That's a good start. We are also seeing reduction in the type of requirements for people who have criminal records. One of the problems with a lot of these licensing requirements is that if you have a conviction, a felony conviction on your record, you can never qualify for a license. And we've seen states like Florida exempt uh, a lot of jobs from that prohibition that was there before. And finally, we're seeing simply some states that are simply trying to take some uh, of the special interest power out of this. Arizona, for example, is trying to limit the boards that determine licensing requirements to require more lay participation rather than have it simply be made up of people who are in the profession. So that, for example, the board that determines painting licenses will not just be the owners of painting companies. It would actually have some lay participation in there to hopefully mean that uh, you can give us some of the special interest power of limiting competition and creating barriers to entry. All right, Michael, my last question for you, I want to put you on the spot. So let's say that you're suddenly in charge of policy when it comes to occupational licenses across the country. Would you still have occupational licensing for some professions? And what would those be? And then just in general terms, how does that landscape look different than it is today? Ideally, I would actually remove all state licensing requirements and replace them with certification by the professions themselves. And then people would be able to practice regardless of the rules, but people would know who was certified by the profession as being a qualified practitioner. So uh, the Bar Association could determine who is a uh, qualified lawyer, but if you wanted to write a will, you would not necessarily have to have uh, uh, acceptance by the bar. You you would be able to do it and then take your chance. People could take their chances on that. Now that's an ideal world in a, in a more realistic world. Uh, I would suggest that what we need to do is standardize uh, licensing requirements. States should be running through their current list of licensing requirements and determining which ones actually have to do with health and safety of the public, uh, and that they can then limit those, and particularly they should limit the cost, time, and fees so that low-income people uh, can participate uh, in the economy and then not just sort of the, the wealthy special interests. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Michael, and thank you listeners for tuning in. And also, 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 thank you to our sponsor, MBI, the National Business Institute. You can find them at mbi-sems.com. Don't forget that promo code, LegalTalkMBI, to receive $100 off your next CLE. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. 